This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. The second half of these interviews are reserved for patrons only. If you like this show, visit my website, pryingpriest.com, for more content and to learn how you can become a patron of the show. Enjoy the first half of this interview. Welcome, Dr. Sarah Riccardi Swartz to the Prying Priest podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Father. It, it has been a while in the making. Last <laughs> December, or this past Dece- December 2020 was when we first exchanged emails about possibly having you on the show. And I'm glad that we finally made it happen. Yes, I'm so excited to be on board for this. Yeah, awesome. So I always at the start of the show, that's where I do my plugs because I will forget by the end. So... Sarah, would you give a little bit of a, maybe an introduction of who you are, uh, maybe how even we got connected, because we don't actually know each other personally. So maybe how that happened. And then, um, and then, you know, where can people find you, your, your work and all that? Great. Well, actually, this is the first time Father and I have, have had a conversation. Everything has been via email. So it's really nice to finally, finally meet him via this digital space and meet his audience. Um, I am an anthropologist and a scholar of American religion. I work on um, politics, media, and um, issues of race and whiteness. I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict at Arizona State University. Um, I received my PhD from New York University in 2020 during the pandemic year which was not the greatest year to go on the job market, but it worked out really well for me. Um, And I'm also a trained documentary filmmaker. And I want to tell you, since you said it's free to plug, that Mm -hmm. uh, I have a book coming out with Fordham University Press in spring of 2022. It's called Between Heaven and Russia, Religious Conversion and Political Apostasy in Appalachia. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you uh, you have a website as well, and on that website there's a whole bunch of resources and everything like that. So, um, I encourage people to go to uh, to your website. Um, I'll probably yeah, put and the it's link just my there. Last name, yeah, it's Ricardi Swartz, no hyphen. Um, dot com. Wonderful. Well, this is a show about exploring why people believe what they do, but not necessarily the the intellectual reasons why, but maybe some of the interpersonal reasons why. What is it about somebody's upbringing? What is it about the people that they surround themselves with? What is it about um, their friends or their contacts that they find themselves in that form belief and form religious practice? So uh, I thought before we get into some of the weightier issues, which, which we will, because I'm excited to learn from you, I was wondering if you could share a little bit, first of all, with what religion, I guess, was like in your home growing up? And, and what was your experience of, quote unquote, religion in your you know, youngest memories and, and in your childhood? That is such a great question. You would make an excellent ethnographer, Father. That's awesome. Um, my, I, I would say my childhood was steeped in religion. Um, and as, as a child, I, I would consider myself very religious, 
I loved church. Um, I grew up in what some scholars might call a cult um, in the United Pentecostal Church in the rural Midwest. And I went to church constantly. I was there for Wednesday night prayer meetings, for Sunday morning worship services, Sunday night, sometimes Sunday morning turned into Sunday night. You know, it was just like an all day thing. You just stayed at church, you ate at church and you prayed at church and you were there for hours. Um, And I loved being in church. I loved um, thinking about God and worshiping God and praying, but I was, I was a very um, well-read child (laughs) for lack of a better term. And I knew something wasn't right. Um, I should also say that I was, um, free school. Do you know what that is, father? Um, is that similar to unschooling? Yeah, it's, it is, but it's in the sense that I just didn't get to go to school, mm-hmm. um, from fifth grade through high school. Um, oh, wow. yeah. So I spent all of my time at the public library mm-hmm. reading <laughs> lots of books, um, mm-hmm. lots of books about church history. Yeah. Um, I would, I would order books through interlibrary loan. We had a really great library system in Missouri, which was amazing. Like, I'm so thankful for public libraries. And I read Church Fathers and Mothers, and I read um, Lives of the Saints in the Catholic tradition, and I read all sorts of stuff. And I knew that um, the doctrine of uh, oneness Pentecostalism, which is the old heresy of modalism, um, wasn't right. And so when I was 15, I told my parents, I was like, look, this is not right. Here's the evidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we cannot be oneness Pentecostals. We have to be mm-hmm. something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has to be Trinitarian. And so we switched over to the Assemblies of God, which you're mm-hmm. probably familiar with, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a more mainstream um, Pentecostal movement, um, which my husband actually grew up in. And uh, it was a slow process from there. Um, but I always maintained my faith. And, um, I knew that I wanted something deeper, more liturgical, even, um, you know, as, as a teenager, I really loved the aesthetics of, of the liturgy and the beauty of it and chant. Um, you know, I was drawn of course, by the sensorial aspects uh, of, of liturgical traditions. And I, uh, I convinced my mother, my father had passed away and I had convinced my mother to um, go to RCIA classes with me. I said, well, this is, you know, this is nearby. Like this could be a good thing for us. Let's try it out. That's basically like in training to become a Roman Catholic for the listeners who don't know. Yes. Yes. It's sort of like, you know, here's a catechesis class. Let's get you on the road. Mm -hmm. And so we both went and I said, I'm just not, you know, we went for a long time, months. And I said, I'm really not feeling it. And I asked her how she felt. And she said, no, I'm I'm really not. It's just, it's not what we're looking for. So I, uh, I had the really good fortune to take a Hebrew class while I was at a university. And I, the first day of the Hebrew class, it was the spring semester. I remember it was so cold. I walked in, I was freezing. And I sat down to next to this woman who had like icy white skin and this like stunning black hair. And she turned to me, she's this older woman, you know, in a college classroom. And she says, my name is Mary Jo. And I think we're going to be excellent friends. And I was like, okay, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not the most extroverted person in the world. So it was a little, you know, unsettling, but I was like, all right, sure. Why not? You know, you need a friend when you're learning a language and, uh, why not? Why not Mary Jo? And 
she's great. She's wonderful. And over the course of the semester, she told me, hey, I go to an Orthodox church. Do you want to go? And I was like, I've heard of the Orthodox. I read all about them. But I, you know, the liturgies are in Greek and, and Russian. And I don't, I don't, at the time, I didn't know those languages. And she said, no, 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 this is, a, it's mostly in English, like 95%. And I was like, what? That exists? That that's a thing here in the in the Midwest, and she said, "Yes, it totally is." Will you come with me? And I was like, "Of course, I'll come with you." So I, I I can remember this day, this Sunday that I walked into the church. So like just like it was yesterday, I walked in, and it was a beautiful spring morning, and it's this little church way out in the country, and it was just filled with incense and sunlight. And the sun was shining off these beautiful icons on the walls. And I went, oh, I can never leave. And that was it. And and from there, it took, oh, five years because I had to read everything, of course, because that's just me. As, of course, yeah. As, you mm-hmm. know, as the weird scholarly kid, I had to read everything. Um, and my mother was like so annoyed by this, right? <laughs> because she was like, I'm old. I'm going to die. You know, you know how older people are. They always think they're going to die. And she's like, I want to be in the church. And I said, okay, fine. So she was chrismated a year before I was baptized into the church. Wow. Um, She's like, I'm just doing this. Let me do my thing. And I said, all right, you do it. She's like, you can read all you want. Mm. Um, But it really was, you know, for me, it was not only about the heart and the aesthetics of the church, but it was also about the knowledge and what I found in, in the writings of the church. So that for me was important that I had that, that foundation that I could trust before I made that leap. And that's Mm. why it took so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so many things in there. Like so many questions have (laughs) blossomed in my mind. Um, Okay. So uh, you mentioned that you started, you were, you would read in the library and you started reading, I guess you were reading theology talking about like Trinitarian theology versus, you know, whatever. Yeah. How did you, I mean, if you grew up in the oneness Pentecostal church, how did you know that the, that wasn't right. And the Trinity was right. Like, did you come to that conclusion based on all the reading that you had been doing? Or did you have like a gut feeling that oneness wasn't right? Or how did that all work? I did have a gut feeling, um, which my mother would say is like a juju thing. But (laughs) it, you know, I did like from early on, I would be like, this isn't right. This is weird. This is, you know, this is off. Like this obsession with speaking in tongues. It's like super weird. Um, And it just doesn't feel comfortable to me, like in my, as a person. Um, but yeah, it was reading a lot of, you know, I started by reading just uh, uh, like handbooks of the saints. And then I, and I went from there. Um, and I, then I read uh, Catholic theology and then I read, you know, and then I started reading through, I, I would, once I would read through a book, I would go through and see, okay, who are they citing? who did they read? And then I would read mm-hmm. those people. And then, mm-hmm. I, and then I would go through theirs and who did they read? And then we'd get back to the original text. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when I was in college, I was really lucky because I majored in religious studies and I took classes in new Testament, um, Hebrew Bible, all of that, you know, church history. It was great. I took Hebrew, mm-hmm. Greek, German, Russian. Mm-hmm. So I was able to have that full experience of, okay, here's everything I need to know. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find how did you find that experience of getting a religion degree in your undergrad? So my undergrad is in religion and culture from the University of Winnipeg. And I found it at times 
really rewarding and at other times very difficult coming in from uh, with an explicit faith background or faith commitment. And, the, you know, the culture at the time at the school I was going to was professors would purposely not say what religion they were or anything like that because they didn't want to like um, uh, skew anybody's learning. They didn't want their mm -hmm. own faith to uh, obscure the objective study of religion or whatever it might be. But yeah, how, how did you find doing a degree in, in religion? So I did my degree at a state school um, mm -hmm. and in the U.S. And, you know, I had the same sort of experience where you you really don't, you know, that's the the hallmark of a, of a classic religious studies, a secular religious studies um, department is that you don't really express your own religious values and beliefs in the classroom or, mm -hmm. you know, even during office hours. Um, I actually liked that because mm -hmm. it allowed me to sort of step back and say, OK, let's just talk about religion. Let's talk about the history of it. Let's talk about the ideas. You know, nobody's pushing me to think a certain way or trying to suggest something. It's just, it's here. Let's analyze everything. And I actually found that quite beautiful. It, it reminded me in many ways of just being back in the library and just looking at everything on my own and being allowed to think um, and not having somebody tell me, okay, this is the right thing to do and this is the wrong thing to do. Um, but I was going to tell you something, but I can't remember what it was. It's a story and I have too mm -hmm. many. So continue gotcha, on father. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I, I always struggle. And, and I think, you know, if I were to, if I were to teach now, like, I mean, I'm a priest, so I'd have to basically function that way with, a, with a cassock and everything like that, probably. But, um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting time at the university. Um, all right, well, let's maybe, oh, here's, here's one of the questions that, uh, from your previous story, you mentioned that you had read this about whatever it might be, the Trinity versus, you know, the oneness Pentecostalism. And you told your parents, we, we got to, we got to switch. And then you said, so we did. Yes. Like, how old were you? And, and my question is your parents listened to you. Yeah. Well, I'm <laughs> like, very convincing. Shocking. If you have, <laughs> you have, you don't know me, but I am very oh, okay. convincing. Okay. Um, it won't be shocking by the end of the interview. No. <laughs> No, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it'll be like, no, I will never be convinced. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think because I had marshaled all this evidence, I was like a really evidence-based child. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted people to see things in writing. And I said, I remember sitting at our oak. I still, we still have this table. I, I brought it into to the marriage with me, this oak dining room table that my parents had bought from an Amish farm. And I remember sitting across from them and saying, look, here's the evidence. Like, look at these look at these sources. You can't, mm -hmm. you can't deny it. This is literally an ancient heresy, mm -hmm. um, just repackaged. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do about it? <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and I think because, you know, my father had grown up Roman Catholic, um, his eyes were sort of, you know, the, the scales fell off of his eyes, so to speak. And he was like, mm -hmm. Oh, wow. You're, yeah. And, and my mother who, um, who had previously, you know, been a Trinitarian as a child growing up and had been converted by her own family into this oneness um, group, sort of, maybe I was brainwashed, you know, mm -hmm. I, I can see it. Um, I, so I think it just, you know, that's what I, and I think that's why I sort of appreciate being an academic. It's like, I, I love sources and I love evidence. And I mm -hmm. feel like when it's there for people, how, how can you reject it? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I find, I, I, you know, I've heard from various friends and from 
reading sources that um, there are there can be sometimes in the in the in particular like let's say one is Pentecostal or certain kinds of Pentecostal churches um, an anti intellectual streak. Um, and, you know, honestly, that can happen in Orthodox churches as well. It can happen everywhere. But um, these are sort of the maybe the stereotypical kinds of churches that might say, well, don't go to seminary, right? Mm, um, mm. Don't go there because, you know, seminary is the place where faith goes to die. Um, did you was, I don't know, did you experience that kind of approach to what it meant to learn about your faith when you were growing up in that church? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> Very few people were educated in terms of having a degree from, um, you know, an accredited university Mm -hmm. uh, when I was growing up. Um, And that that to me was a problem um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, we would have like almost like circuit writer, you know, evangelists come around who would, you know, knock people over and praying for them and um, prophesy things about the end of the world. And yet they have no, um, evidence to back up their claims and, um, they have no training to really actually tell us what, uh, what is right. Um, so it was always really such a problem for me. I remember perhaps my father was the one who was always sort of slightly skeptical as well, because I remember him sitting in a back pew once while there was this evangelist who would you know, have people jump up and down for hours and, and shake. And and I remember like just him, I I was sitting with a group of friends and I turned around and he was just, the look on his face was just like one of like, Oh, not again, you know, not again. So I I think that I always felt this sort of desire to, to be part of a community in which learning about the the history of world Christianity um, and the, and the history of all religions in general is important and it's valid. Did you ever speak in tongues when you were in that church? You know, I think I did when I was really little, I would have to think back. I had a, I had a severe uh, medical incident when I was a child. So a lot of my memory is fuzzy Mm. Um, from that period, but I'm pretty sure that I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, now I know my husband didn't, he was, he was in, um, the assemblies of God, which also they believe in speaking in tongues. And he has told me, no, I haven't. Um, which people always find fascinating who, who, um, who want to learn about Pentecostals. And he's like, no, I, that's not, that wasn't my jam. <laughs> that's not going to happen. Yeah. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? I mean, what do you think happens when people speak in tongues? Well, I, you know, I think, uh, so I'm really fond of um, an anthropologist known as Tanya Lerman, and she writes a lot for the New York Times. Um, she's works on sort of uh, anthropology of psychology, um, anthropology of religious experience, but she's very sensitive and attuned to um, the, pe- the people she's writing about. And I, I kind of agree with her that it's sort of a religious effervescence um, that... Uh, you know, we see this sort of thing happen also in other religious communities expressed in different ways, right? So when people go into trancing and dancing in Bali um, in their indigenous communities, the same sort of thing happens, right? It takes hold of you. It's part of this sort of uh, uh, spiritual communitas that you feel. And I can go along with that. Now, you know, of course, we know in the New Testament that there are um, times when it talks about speaking in tongues. We also know that it's considered one of the least gifts. 
And we also know that uh, it's, it's, when we see, especially, for example, on the day of Pentecost, when they're speaking in tongues, right, there's a people understood them, right, outside. And I think that that is key, right? Mm. Um, perhaps it was used in the early in the early church as, as something as a gift that could help people understand each other. But I don't necessarily think it is something um, that is, you know, an active agent right now. Um, nor I, and I also, I, I, I tend to worry about um, these experiences in which people are speaking in tongues when there's, there's no evidence that people can understand them. Who, f- my question is, who's that edifying? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's St. Paul's question to the Corinthians. Yeah. Was, like, who's this for? Right. Like, if there's no one there yeah. to interpret, like if it's not meant to actually communicate anything, why what's going on exactly yeah um yeah that's fascinating you mentioned that you are you were good at convincing your parents that you you know you can marshal the evidence and you can convince have you ever been convinced by somebody else oh i mean yeah sure millions of times Mm-hmm. I, I'm convinced uh, by my husband on a daily basis to do all sorts of interesting and ridiculous things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I was convinced by uh, my degree program that I could uh, be a documentary filmmaker and I did it, you know, mm-hmm. but I didn't go in anticipating that I would do that. Um, so I am, I, I think that if you have um, a convincing story, then usually I can be persuaded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> What's something that you held on to dearly, maybe in your younger years, let's say in terms of like a belief or an intellectual agreement that mm-hmm. you've since loosened or completely let go of? Oh, wow. Um, <sighs> you know, that's, that's a really hard one um, because mm-hmm. I think that I... I don't think I've ever had an intellectual idea that I so firmly grasped to that I didn't allow myself to be plastic in some way. Um, because I think that that's the sign of, of a healthy person is to always be learning and growing. And I'm worried when my ideas become stagnant. You know, if I, if I find myself writing something that sounds similar, I'm like, well... It might be true, but also let's think of a new way we can think, you know, reframe it Um, because I'm missing something if I'm just doing the same thing over and over. That's, that's a very interesting conversation is the place of beliefs. Like our, our beliefs, let's say for, for a Christian or Orthodox Christian or whatever, our, are our beliefs in the same category as our opinions? Hmm. I mean, that's a really great question because there's a new book coming out called Sincerely Held Beliefs um, by Charlie McCrary, who is also at ASU. He's a, a scholar of American religion, and he's thinking about what beliefs mean in terms of religious beliefs mean in terms of opinions uh, uh, in legal systems. And so I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there's a good answer. My, my, if I put on my anthropologist hat, right? I would say that uh, beliefs and opinions are uh, different, 
but, uh, you know, have some equality to them. Um, you know, we can, because if we start to differentiate between beliefs and opinions, right, then we're privileging, um, religion in some respects. And there are people who are non-religious, a-religious, um, and they hold opinions about the world, right? But they wouldn't necessarily call them beliefs. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah, I don't know the answer. So that's, that's a great question. I um, also think I would say that when we start talking about belief, we have to th- start thinking about um, truth and reality, um, because if we say, well, this is what I believe, right? It doesn't necessarily mean it's the truth or that it is actually part of reality. Yeah. I was recently reflecting on how I would define belief. And I mean, tell me what you think of this. A belief is an imperfect attempt at an, at an approximation of truth. Oh, that's really interesting. I like that. It's really interesting. Yeah. And they, if it would, that's actually, I mean, I would put, I would put, um, I would put that definition to what words are as well. Hmm. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, when I, when I teach, um, I have my students write a definition of religion as a tweet. Yeah. Because yeah. I, and then, so everybody writes a tweet mm-hmm. and then we put them all up right on the screen on this, on a page. So they're all, they're all put into one like Google doc and we mm-hmm. put it up on the screen and then we look, we sort of cross-reference what matches and what doesn't. And we start to like whittle it down to these, you know, these roots that have um, grown and spread and become sort of the, uh, the guiding idea that most people think of when they think of what religion is. And it's just, it's such a great exercise and you can do that with any word. And I love it. And I do it myself in my own brain. Like, what am I, what does this actually mean to me? Um, and then I just try to synthesize it as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, I am looking forward to being your student one day. <laughs> um, okay. So is it Socrates that had like, you know, if you're going to make an art, if you're going to convince somebody of an argument, you need these three things like logos, pathos and, and ethos or whatever. Um, so, so this is just prefacing my, my question. So, you know, logos being sort of the logical, the the evidence, the whatever it might be, the ethos being sort of, you can think of it as like the trustworthiness or the relationship you have with the speaker, right? You're going to, if your husband gives you some criticism, you're going to take that more seriously than if somebody yells it out the window on the street, right? Yes. Um, so, the, you know, the, the relationship you have, the trusting relationship you have with somebody contributes to whether this thing will change your mind or not. And then the third one being pathos, which is the appeal to emotion. Um, and it seems to me, and, you know, I, th- I think it's Socrates, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that, you know, in this model of what it means to actually maybe convince somebody, you need all those three things in balance. But it, it seems to me that currently in our society, there is an extreme amount of an imbalance of too much pathos of, of emotion driven mm-hmm. by prob, you know, I think that, you know, social media is a contributor to that. Um, you know, our siloing and our echo chambers contribute to that. So there's sort of way too much heightened emotion and even moralizing is sort of thrown in there. But mm-hmm. then also I think that there's a imbalance in ethos in that people, people will take 
people will trust certain sources, you know, you know not right. other sources. They build right. relationships with sources, but there's, you know, maybe not enough of that logos, that convincing side of uh, that, you know, actually weighing evidence as being part of that trinity of convincing. Mm-hmm. I that's just a thought that came into my head and I want to get your take on it, whether you would agree if there's sort of an imbalance in those two things, or maybe you disagree with the whole model. I just wanted to get your take on it. Uh, first of all, I'm not, I can't remember who said it. Um, you know, it's one of the spa, the spa boys, mm-hmm. as I call yeah. them. And it's been a long, long time since I've studied ancient Greek philosophy. Um, I have moved on, but, <laughs> um, it's still valid and still important. Uh, no, I, I, I see this a lot. You're so right in social media. And um, especially now with the rise of what I would consider micro celebrities. Um, and I see this a lot in the Orthodox world. Um, there's these guys who, you know, have thousands of followers on YouTube and Twitter and, and they're very popular and they're not that well educated. Um, and I mean, they might, they might have, you know, uh, an MA or in, in an adjoining field to theology, whatever. But they just, they have that appeal, right? And they know how to, they're very good marketers of themselves and their ideas. And that allows them to gain followers who just, who just believe them and will take it in hand uh, and take their advice over that of a priest or a bishop. Yeah, Um, it's like, it's like the, the ethos, the trustworthiness of the source completely overshadows the the logos part of what it means to actually interact with an idea that somebody's teaching. Yeah. Right? It's like, well, just because that person said it, I'm going to believe it. As opposed to, okay, this trusted person has told me such and such. Let me also go look at the sources that they're using and come to my own conclusion. Right, right. It's like, there's the, so there's this great, and I'll use myself because, I don't know, your, your, your followers may or may not know that a lot of people on Twitter hate me um, because I write about the church. Um, I, don't, don't, I don't hate you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Father. That's that's very, it, it's very warming to know, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, with the, the funny thing is, like, I, I write these, these public-facing pieces, which are very short, right, and very concise. And you have to slightly generalize things, right, um, to get it out to a public audience. Now, I have a book coming out that nobody's read except me and two very kind reviewers. Um, and so nobody knows what I'm going to say, Right. And yet they all assume that they know, and it becomes this, um, this, this narrative and people believe it and retweet it because certain people on social media say it and, and say it with this, this level of authority that they don't, they should not have, right? These are 18 year old, you know, boys in their basements eating Mm -hmm. Cheetos and, you know, tweeting on their iPhones. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's 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 absolutely fascinating to me that in fact I'll give you an example. There's this <laughs> there's this uh, subject going around that because my last name is Swartz that I'm Jewish. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I am not Jewish. <laughs> um, and but it keeps right it keeps going circulating. Um, there's memes of me, um, very very anti-Semitic memes of me with like a long nose running running around social media, and it. it it'll go away for a few months and it will come back and it keeps coming back because particular users, Twitter users have some sort of credibility, um, trustworthiness among their followers, right? Even though it lacks logic, no one's ever asked me, right? 
and it smacks of conspiracy theories. <laughs> but yeah. because because they have that not only credibility but that celebrity in some respects among this really niche group, people believe it. It's absolutely mm -hmm. astounding. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that that all is happening to you because that cannot be fun, you know, oh. emotionally and, and everything. It, you know, it's at this point, it's just like I, you know, I, I had my, my husband was very upset about it in the spring and, and you know, with good cause because people try, try to dox, dox you and um, they, they can, who knows who is violent, who is not violent. Um, but at this point, it's just sort of sad to see, to see mm. the, re the reactions because it's not, if they're truly calling themselves Orthodox Christians, that's not the way an Orthodox Christian would act. Yeah. Like you almost have. Like it almost breaks your heart mm. for what that person has become. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, I, me and my wife have this, <laughs> have this, uh, way of speaking to each other where we'll oh, let's say one of us says something or whatever. The other one will say, okay, is this a me problem or is this a you problem? And they'll be like, <laughs> oh no, you're right. This is a me problem. <laughs> and then we'll just identify. Right. And so, so many times when people tweet at you or whatever it might be, you know, is this a me problem? Is this a you problem? It's likely a them problem. Yeah. Uh, it's not a you problem. Um, I guess one of the ways we do that, though, is just having a good community around us and and reflecting on, you know, at, if, if we have trustworthy people around us who are saying, no, you're not crazy. <laughs> that's helpful yeah. and, and, and useful. But yeah. yeah, I think I do think that social media really does incentivize only viewing certain. Uh, yeah, you just view certain people and that's who you trust and their word is law. And you, it, it almost removes the need to, for that logos piece, that, that, that logic yes. piece. Yes, it does. Because I, you know, I, I will often like recently with the deplatforming of a very high ranking monastic in, in the Russian church from a certain, you know, social media platform, people were just livid and the logic uh, that they were following was just going down these wild rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. um, and, was not healthy at all. And I saw that and thought immediately, wow, like this is, this is what happens when you don't like actually listen to authority and you're just thinking for yourself about, um, you know, and, and listening to these micro celebrities. And it's so much so that, you know, these micro celebrities are turning against priests. They're turning against bishops and patriarchs. Mm -hmm. And, and and so and my, my, I said to, I said to my husband the other day I was like if they're if they're so invested in a hierarchical structure of a church then why aren't they willing to follow it right yeah there's called obedience you know <laughs> like that to me is the price of admission um, <laughs> yeah um, well let's maybe change gears a little bit um, what do you think about mm, I wonder where I should go with this. Okay, what do you think people need to know in our culture about religion in order, like the bare minimum somebody should kind of have to know about religion in order to be, I guess, respectful or be able to carry on a basic, good-natured, if not informed, but a good conversation kind of about any religious topic? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I would first say, if any of your listeners... Uh want to take a college course, they should, right? In world religions. I think that's, that is the best thing they could do. Um, I think that they should at least have read 
introductory material in in all of the world major world religions and be well versed in that and also well versed in understanding what agnosticism and atheism is um because that's that's really crucial um you know whether you agree or disagree with any of these traditions you have to at least understand them and so you know picking up something like um you know an introduction to buddhism an introduction to jainism you know it's going to you know maybe take you like an hour or two hours to read and and you're done. And you know something now so that when you come across someone who says, oh, I'm a Buddhist, you can say, oh, cool. What path do you follow? You know, mm-hmm. reading something about a religious tradition does not mean that you agree with it. And I think a lot of people think that, mm-hmm. right? They think, oh, if I read this, then I somehow agree with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Being widely read is a good thing. Um, understanding a lot about different parts of the world is a wonderful thing. It helps us be intellectual citizens of the world and engaged people who actually can, you know, interact. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're getting close to the end of the public side of the podcast. So for all of the people that are listening right now, if you are listening and you're not a patron of the show, you're only getting half of this interview and you only get half of my entire show. So uh, if you do want to get uh, access to all of the extended interviews for all the pre- there's 30 plus pre- uh, previous uh, interviews now, um, then you can go to pryingpriest.com slash support or just patreon.com slash Prying Priest, and you can uh, support the show. And that way you get immediate access to all of those uh, episodes uh, and you'll get access to this one as well. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. I'm going to tease the audience with a couple of questions I'm going to ask you, Sarah, in the, um, in the private podcast. Um, yeah, one of them is, is the Orthodox Church's position of not ordaining women, bishops or priests, a good enough reason to leave the church? Mm-hmm. Um, I actually asked. I actually once asked somebody. Uh, this is somebody from the Anglican tradition who they had. Um, they were uh, holding this position of you should have women priests. And I said, okay, like should I? Should I? Because my church isn't doing that. Should I leave my church? Mm. Right. So that mm. that was an interesting. I'll, I'll tell a little bit more of that story. Um, oh, this one will be fun. In what ways have you seen the right wing smuggle itself or right wing thinking smuggle itself into Orthodox Christianity? Oh, oh, oh. So that, 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 you definitely be a want to sign up for Patreon. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So to take us to the end of the public podcast, I want to ask, there's, there's this thing that happens with converts to Orthodox Christianity sometimes in which they convert. And because the church has so much of an inheritance, even the English speaking ones have so much of an inheritance from the cultures that they have come from, whether it be Russia, Ukraine, Serbia, Greece, whatever it might be. Sometimes converts come in and they feel that having become Orthodox is somehow like not good enough. I have to also become Russian or Greek or Serbian or Ukrainian or etc. How, in your perspective, has this maybe gone wrong for some people? Yeah, maybe let's just do do like what what are the drawbacks of that kind of thing? Like what what has gone wrong with that, or maybe what has gone right with that? Maybe there's a there's good in that too. Hmm. Well, I think it very quickly becomes cultural appropriation, um, and it also can very readily marginalize ethnic communities. 
that have already fought through decades of marginalization in the American religious landscape, uh, especially emptying in the United States. Um, so I, you know, and I've seen this a lot because I work in communities where um, uh, converts are part of the Russian Orthodox Church abroad and they get really like focused on Russia. They become, you know, Slavophiles and they are just like, whoo, they're in it, right? You know, there's pictures of the czar, there's pictures of Putin, there's flags, there's all sorts of things. You know, they're eating Russian food and thinking about Russian peasant wear and all of that. And, you know, I I can't see it as healthy. Um, and, what, and what I can see it is, you know, from if I put on my, my anthropologist hat, is that it is cultural appropriation. Um, because it's not just, it becomes not about the religion, but it almost becomes ethylphilatism. You've just finished listening to the first half of this interview. Find out how to access the second half by visiting my website, pryingpriest.com. We'll see you next time. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all 